This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, we're mixing a little politics and weddings, actually, today for our hot question of the day. Lots of pictures. You probably saw them in the news of Green Party leader Elizabeth May's wedding yesterday in Victoria. It was like a who's who of the political world showed up to support her for that. And it looked lovely. Also there as a guest, very noticeable, Jody Wilson-Raybould. And so a lot of attention, obviously, on that. And at the wedding, she said she has spoken with the Green leader, Elizabeth May, several times about potentially joining the Greens and running for them in the next election. Of course, remember that she and Dr. Jane Philpott were removed from the Liberal caucus and they were disallowed from running for the party this fall. So we are going to be talking to Keith Baldry uh, about this and a few other political stories that have come up after the news. But we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. What do you think about this? Which party do you think Jody Wilson-Raybould should run for? Should she run for the Greens? Should she run for the NDP? Apparently that has also come up. Should she run as an independent? Or do you think, none, quit politics. Man, it's like craziness what's been happening over the last six months. Now, cast your vote on this. You can go to Sarah 980 on Twitter. You can go to at CKNW on Twitter and cast your vote. You can email me with your thoughts on this, simi at cknw.com. Uh, you can also use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. And I find this a really interesting question because there's so much interest in Jody Wilson-Raybould right now and what she's going to do. She's going to run again. She's given every intention, looks like publicly, that she's going to run again. And I think there's a lot of desire for her to run as an independent. Because people say, yeah, you know what, forget the party thing, just run as an independent, be an example of of independence everywhere. But she can get more done if she aligns herself with a party, and especially if that party has official status. And for the Greens, I mean, man, it would be a dream for them, right, to have Jody Wilson-Raybould come and run for them. It would mean higher status for them. Uh, they may be able, to be able to attract more candidates. They might win more seats if they know that they were able to attract her to the party. So there's a lot at stake here. Same for the NDP, if they could get her to run for them as well. So what do you think she should do? Should she run as an independent and say, forget all those other parties? Clearly, the party system uh, did not work for her already with the way it went with the Liberals? Or should she uh, run as an independent? Simi Sarah 980 on Twitter. Email me, simi at cknw.com. Well, you know what? We're only six months away or so from a federal election, and there's lots of talk about who's going to be running where. For instance, the federal Liberals, even though it seems like they have been down and out the last few months, managed to snag themselves uh, what looks like a high-profile candidate in the interior of BC with Terry Lake, the former BC Liberal MLA, former health minister, uh, deciding to throw his hat in the ring. We want to talk about this and other things going on in politics today. Keith Baldry joins us now, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Good morning to me. Okay, so were you surprised by the Terry Lake thing or no? No, not at all. I mean, he's he's been dropping broad hints for months now that uh, he was uh, leaning that in that direction. I think the only thing that may be a tiny bit of surprise, and maybe surprise not the right word, is that given the decline in liberal fortunes as a result of, uh, or the perceived decline in liberal fortunes as, as a result of that ongoing, lingering SNC-Lavalin mess and the, the removal of Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Tilbock from Cabinet, that maybe with the Liberal brand tarnished, whether he'd have second thoughts, but clearly Terry Lake thought about it and thinks that, no, it's uh, it's still a, a viable option for him. As you mentioned, he's a longtime Liberal MLA, uh, highly regarded health minister, uh, well-liked around the legislature. He's not known for being overly partisan. 
partisan about anything. He's a, sort of a middle-of-the-road fellow. And he's got a personal appeal, I think, up there that'll do him well. And uh, keep in mind, the conservative candidate there, Kathy McLeod, only won by 3,000 votes last time. That's not an insurmountable uh, mountain for him to scale. Yeah. So I think it's it's a writing that uh, traditionally, historically, has been conservative. But parts of it used to elect Nelson Reese, uh, NDP, oh, MP, yeah. uh, a number of years ago. So there is some, uh, some non-conservative elements there that Lake clearly is hoping to take advantage of. So what do you think about, what does this say about the Liberal Party's chances then a lot of people said that, oh, that's it. Like, you know, they're on the downhill slide, but they did manage to snag somebody like this. Don't count the Liberals out uh, at all. Uh, we're still months away from a federal election. As we all have learned our lesson in B.C., do not assume an election result is is what it is before those ballot boxes are open, the votes are counted. We learned that in 2013. I think a lot of people learned that in 2017. Uh, things change in a campaign. Campaigns matter. Uh, people don't really pay attention to uh, yeah. to voting intentions until they're they're asked to and asked to focus on the on the issues at hand. And and often, you know, the liberals are going to play this card that uh, you know really you don't want to vote for us. Who are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote for Andrew Scheer? Are you really going to you know make that long walk from the Liberal Party over to the Conservatives? Or are you going to go to Jagmeet Singh, who hasn't really lit a lot of fires out there? Uh, so no, this thing is still in play, and I think Terry Lake has made a calculated uh, move here that he thinks that the Trudeau brand and the Liberal brand is still strong in British Columbia. It may be tarnished uh, in, in pockets of the province, but uh, clearly he's hoping that's that's not the case in Canada. And certainly, you know, Justin Trudeau, for all the negative media he's been getting, he's been in a ton of it, uh, he has these town hall meetings and these public gatherings, and he still gets big crowds, and he still gets these this positive response from people. So he's a pretty good campaigner. I think he's a better campaigner than both Sheer and Singh, and that matters in an election campaign. Could do you think, could we see more former BC Liberal MLAs trying their hand at federal politics this year? Well, that's a good question. I, I wonder, uh, you know, a, a number of MLAs have told me, once you get into politics, it's in your blood, you never really want to leave. And right. you're, you're trying to find another entry point. Nobody springs off the top of my head as, as a logical candidate to uh, to make that leap into into the federal side. And a lot of VC liberals, really, a number of them are conservatives. So it's uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a couple of familiar faces line up on either party come the next, uh, the next election. But uh, it's still early days now. That election is still months away. A lot's going to happen. The summer, every, everybody goes quiet in the summer. You yeah. go to the barbecue circuit. So we really are not going to get going on this thing until September. Oh, well, let's talk about the other interesting story then for federal politics is there's Jody Wilson-Raybould at the wedding of Elizabeth May yesterday, and she says, yeah, oh yeah, I've been asked a couple of times to run for the Green Party. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, this wasn't a case of Jody Wilson-Raybould just, you know, driving across town and going to someone's wedding. This is Victoria. She had to take a ferry here. So there was a commitment to actually come to this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was very interesting to see uh, Wilson Raybould there, and she mentioned she's had several conversations with the Greens about potentially being a candidate. And this is a really fascinating situation because uh, Jody Wilson Raybould is, uh, you know, sort of painted in heroic, saint like hues for many people for standing up to, to a government. Does she lose that cachet, that, that sort of personal appeal, right. if she attaches herself to another political party? Or, or right now, she's, she's basically on an island on herself, by herself, and it's all about, you know, it's, it's her. And she may lose some of that appeal if she, if she joins another established party. And that, that's the challenge she's got. If she wants to run, do you run as an independent or do you run as a Green Party a candidate? I think... Um, it's going to be a struggle to win that as an independent or as a Green Party candidate. I think the Conservative vote is pretty solid there. 
and that may be enough for one of the uh, victors in that riding to emerge with you know a little more than 30 percent of the of the electorate and emerge victorious. So it's an interesting challenge Wilson Raybould has whether or not to run as an independent, run as a Green Party candidate. I don't see her joining the other parties, but. Uh, uh, she's got some name recognition and name appeal right now, but will it be as strong as it is now yeah. come October? You know, that SNC-Lavalin issue will fade from the headlines. Wilson-Raybould will fade. And then you're in a campaign on your own. The Green Party doesn't have a lot of resources to, to assist you. So it's uh, it's gonna, it's easier said than done for her to win either as an independent or as a Green Party candidate. But having said that, if anybody can do it uh, right now, yeah. I would say it's Wilson-Raybould because she does have that name recognition. And what is being in the party then? get for her is it is it like this better organization better infrastructure and it sounds like they could land quite a few they could land a few more mps this time around they may um you know there's talk of jane philbot also running for, yeah. the, for the green party the greens today i think the election in pei may actually uh, emerge victorious as a government there if, if the greens actually form a government in pei that may have a spillover effect uh and give it the that party some momentum i don't think it has a strong party infrastructure but it's better than being an independent the other thing sammy what if uh, Trudeau wins the election but doesn't form a majority and ah. now is a minority uh, government. It's conceivable. Who knows? If there's uh, two or three Green MPs, they may actually may hold the keys to power here because uh, you know Trudeau will logically be looking to the NDP to help prop him up into power, but that's not a, a sure thing and even that may not be enough to seal the deal. So this election uh, coming in the fall is uh, a fascinating one in, in many ways more so than previous elections because of the, the various uh, outcomes that could uh, result, whether it's a minority government or a weakened majority, or the emergence of a, of a fourth party, the Greens, or the fifth party, the Greens, yeah. in a way we haven't seen before. And Wilson-Raybould is very much a wild card. Do you think then, from what you're saying, that the Liberal Party has kind of turned the corner on this SNC-Lavalin thing? I'm not sure about turning the corner, but I think they've staunched the bleeding. And I, ah. think, uh, I think they've got to get people's attention on other issues, on the economy. Uh, they've got to get people focused on the alternatives, um, and they're going to demonize Andrew Scheer. You can be sure of that. And that's going to resonate with some voters. It may be a turnoff for others, but uh, they've got to get people focusing on the reality at hand. Is okay, you don't want to vote for me, says Justin Trudeau. Are you really going to vote for Andrew Scheer uh, and get them to focus on the on the issues that he represents? It's going to be a dirty campaign. It's going to be a negative campaign. A lot of people are going to be turned off about it, but I think a lot of people are going to be fascinated by it as well. Oh, I think we're in the fascinated camp, right? Exactly. For sure. I can't wait. <laughs> me neither. Thanks for that, Keith. All right, Jimmy. That's Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, talking a little federal politics with us today. We've talked a lot about organized crime and money laundering in this province and in this country. And one of the big concerns for that has been there doesn't seem to be enough kind of legal justice against the people who commit these crimes. In fact, some very high profile cases regarding money laundering have kind of fallen apart at the highest level when they get to the court system. And so that's question that's brought to question actually about well, how are we approaching these crimes and these investigations? Are we doing this properly? And I guess it's something the RCMP has thought about as well because according to the National Post newspaper today, they are reporting that the RCMP is going to tackle organized crime differently by instead now relying on the skills of investigators with a background beyond just traditional frontline policing, but they want a broader range of skills uh, for people who are particularly assigned to the big files like money laundering. They want to see more civilian specialists with backgrounds in accounting and technology to work alongside 
police officers who are fighting these crimes. Wanted to talk more about this kind of twist and see if we think it's going to work. Joining us now is Sam Cooper, the National Investigative Journalist for Global News, who's covered a lot of these stories. Sam, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Cindy. I wanted to kind of recap here for people as well, and you've been covering this. A lot of these kind of high-profile cases, they, they fall apart when they get up to the, the, the justice level, don't they? That's right. And from the experts that we've talked to uh, in, in courts and law and also uh, policing experts, the big issues are that for many years, the RCMP and really police forces across Canada haven't had the resources or the decision-making to fund financial crime investigators. Another big factor is uh, Canada's laws are very stringent on privacy, so that uh, the Charter of Rights is a, an excellent set of laws to protect law-abiding citizens. But what our experts are telling us is that organized crime, and mostly organized crime uh, that's global-based, have been able to find a lot of protections in Canadian court that make it hard for police and prosecutors to put uh, very violent criminals away because it's hard to get a lot of wiretaps going that uh, and complex investigation techniques that are, it, it seems, easier for police forces in countries uh, such as the United States and Australia. So do you think that the potential for having more like civilian experts could be helpful? Absolutely. And uh, I understand that this is a move that uh, has been underway for quite a while, really, by the RCMP. Uh, I think part of it is to deal with the uh, what they call the attrition of traditional police officers that uh, reach retirement age every year and uh, the new hires of young officers aren't made simply because policing hasn't been adequately resourced across the country. Another factor is definitely the uh, for years we're told by by people that have been on the front lines of these money laundering investigations that there was a bias among the RCMP executives to hire cops with guns and not pencils, as they said. So I think what we're seeing uh, is the RCMP responding to this criticism and they're uh, pitching this new hiring move as definitely, uh, you know, uh, an accounting-type organized crime complex investigation-focused initiative. But I think there are cost-saving measures at work as well. Oh, interesting. So you think it's both here. It's not just about, hey, we want to tackle this better, but we think we can save some money while we do it? My understanding in talking to experts in the in the federal organized crime unit for the past year or two is certainly that this this move to hire more civilian investigators has been underway for a while or planned for a while. These would be people that aren't uh, by law required or allowed to carry a gun, but these might be the type of people that are very uh, skilled at connecting the dots and uh, putting cases together. People like accountants, uh, um, you know, chartered uh, forensic investigators, maybe even they'll be looking for people with the skills of lawyers and journalists as well. Right. So just something to get like fresh eyes on this thing. But will this help them kind of legally keep these cases together and moving forward? Well, we're told by the experts that this is the big weakness, that they don't have the experts with the financial crime, uh, you know, expertise, the people that can can connect, uh, let's just say, a transfer from a Vancouver uh, money services business, maybe into a real estate development corporation and then bounced over to Hong Kong and Macau. They, the, the police definitely need those type of experts. So I believe from, you know, from talking to people, this certainly will help. But we have to say that, um, you know, that there's definitely there could be a culture clash between, uh, as we say, you know, uh, 
the hardened police officers that that do carry guns around. They may have certain attitudes towards investigating, and they may yeah. even look down on people that don't carry the guns. And we've uh, the National Post article pointed towards that possibility. And I certainly know that some people um, might think that cultural block might be there. Because as we all know, and as we've heard about over the last 10 years, the RCMP does have a, a problem with the type of culture that it fosters. Certainly. The, I mean, I, I've talked to people and, you know, there have been issues. They're mostly centered around um, female sworn officers, mm-hmm. and those are widely known and reported. But you can envision circumstances where a, a so-called pencil-carrying civilian investigator might think they have a break and, and uh, you know, yeah. the officers that are carrying guns might disagree. I think we've already seen those types of issues with CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and the RCP in the past. And those have come up in, uh, in reviews of botched investigations as well. Do you think any of this, Sam, has to do with any outside pressure that the RCMP feels in, in trying to do a better job on the, on the file, on, the, on money laundering and organized crime? I do. Um, you know, first off, certainly, uh, as I've said, uh, we, we knew or I, people have known that this, this um, initiative was underway. So I think part of what we're seeing is there is certainly a greater urgency to get this initiative, to get these hires underway in response to the, uh, the, the media reporting, also to the Attorney General, uh, Minister Eby's um, uh, reporting on Peter German's latest findings. Certainly, I think the RCMP is responding to that, partly with a sort of a public relations um, announcement, as it were, here. But, but definitely, uh, I think they have been strategically moving in this direction as well. So interesting. Sam, thank you so much for your time on this. Thanks, Cindy. Appreciate that for illuminating the story for us. That's Sam Cooper, National Investigative Journalist for Global News. You know, I feel like Joy Fielding and I could sit here and talk about the books that we are <laughs> reading right now all afternoon, but the best-selling author is here to talk about her books, actually. You've probably seen one of the many that she has written. Maybe it was The Bad Daughter, She's Not There, Someone Is Watching. I mean, you name it. She has sold more than 25 million copies worldwide. I would say she's probably Canada's most beloved thriller writer, and she's been doing this way before these books became popular in the latest kind of genre trend. Wouldn't you say that's true? Yeah, actually, they, I mean, I'm told that I kind of started this whole thing, which I, you know, I, I, I didn't realize, of course, when you're doing things, but way back, you know, I was, I've been doing this for a long time. And yes, it's suddenly very, very popular. Oh, it sure is. Her latest book, the 29th? 20, 28th, I 29th, believe. 28th, 29th? I think it's 28th. I, I have to I counted count them right them. this morning. I have yeah. to count. Is it, well, it could be also because I did one, a, a little a short little book for uh, to help readers, beginner readers. Right. Uh, this one is called All the Wrong Places. It is out now. I'm holding it in my hands, and I am very excited to check this one out. Uh, you also love to read. Yes, I do. Like that's So how do you balance that with... Uh, Turning out a book a year. I mean, well, I'm, I'm slowing down a little bit right now. So um, I actually, when I'm working on a book, when I'm writing, I find it very difficult to read. And if I do read anything, it's mostly nonfiction because I find nonfiction easier to read than fiction. Really? Yeah, well, in, um, because it doesn't require the same level of commitment or concentration. You know, you don't have to really immerse yourself in another world. You can pick it up and put it down and you just kind of absorb information. It's not, 
it it doesn't require kind of sticking with it to the same way that a novel does. Right. And um, so I find when I'm working on a novel, if I'm reading another novel, it's like an intrusion of another voice. I can and, see that, yeah. And also I get tired. You know, I'm, I'm tired of sitting in front of the computer all day or however long I sit. And uh, and just the concentration and, and my eyes get tired. And, and when I would normally then read, all I want to do is watch junk TV. I, I really don't want to concentrate. I feel like we're soulmates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but when I'm traveling or when we're in Florida or on holiday anywhere, then that's when I do the bulk of my reading. Well, now, you know, you live this, you know, you read, you travel, you do things that all seems all very straightforward. Then where do you come up with some of these very evil and twisty things that happen in your books? <laughs> because I'm really a very evil and twisted human being. <laughs> it comes naturally. I mean, people say sometimes about like with this book, well, how did you get in the mind of a serial killer? Because yeah. there, there are some chapters that are devoted to this or from the point of view of the serial killer but actually the book is about four women primarily and on on using dating apps to meet men very and, common today yeah. uh, and the and there's a serial killer trolling these sites looking for victims uh, the scenes the chapters from the point of view of the serial killer were actually the probably the easiest chapters to write because women are much more complicated than serial killers Serial killers are really very one-dimensional. They are very shallow. They have one basic emotion, which is anger, and they are totally self-absorbed. So it's really, they're not very complicated. One-dimensional. Yeah, yeah, you know, whereas women are really complicated. And so um, they're much... They're more of a challenge, really, the, the, when I had to get into the different women right. in the, and their circumstances. But the serial killer, they're really, <laughs> other than their crimes, not particularly interesting. I'm curious, though, because a lot of your books, there's always that great twist in there. There's always something that you don't expect. Right. So what comes first, then? Is it the, the, Does the twist in your, come first in your head and then you build the plot around that, or does it come naturally as you're writing? Um, well, I know what the twist is going to be. I'm not sure, uh, um, and it's evolved. I mean, not all my books actually had a twist, but uh, it sort of seems to have evolved that way a a bit more um, lately. Um, I think I get kind of an an idea, and I know that it's not going to be strictly conventional. I've got to, you know, do something. So once I kind of get the idea and I play with it, well, how how is this going to be interesting, or what can I do that the the reader isn't going to be expecting? expecting. Um, so sometimes the twist, I, I get the twist right away, or I, I think, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to do a book and, and have the reader follow it through thinking one yeah. thing and then sort of put that on its ear. Um, but, and sometimes things develop again as you're going. I always, though, I, I know where I'm going. I think if you're writing any kind of suspense, you have to know your your end point. Otherwise, you can't build toward anything. You have to, you always have to be upping the ante and increasing the tension. And if you don't know where you're going, then you can't do that. So I always know 
you know, roughly where I'm headed. I may not know exactly how it's going to happen. Like occasionally it doesn't, you know, I'll be a chapter away from a major twist and I still won't know what it's going to be. And then suddenly I get, oh my God, I have it. But that's the key really, because if I'm not surprised, I can't really expect the reader to be surprised. Oh, that makes sense. Is that what keeps you interested then? Like you've been writing this genre for 30 years. I mean, long before Gone Girl, long before Girl, on right. the train and the woman at the window. I and know all there this. are all these girls, girls, women. At least, at least the women are grown up. I know, and, and long before all of those books became popular, you have been writing this particular <laughs> genre. What is it about that that you love so much? Well, I love. I, I mean, I find women really interesting. So um, I am what I what I didn't see a lot of, and still don't sometimes, is is in commercial fiction and popular fiction. Uh, Real believable women, uh, and and you get a lot of super women, or you know, women who are good at this, and they're beautiful, and they're rich, and they're talented, and they solve crimes. You know, like they're they're just not necessarily the women I know. The women I know are smart and funny and complicated and. Um, you know, neurotic, whatever else. They're fully realized human beings. And so what I wanted to do was tell a story um, about the women I know and and have readers say, you know, I know her or I am her. And so that was kind of important to me. And then I like a plot. I like a good, strong plot. I don't want to write you know, these boring plotless novels, you know, but <laughs> they go nowhere and you're just kind of thinking, oh, please let this end. And I, so I want to to sort of frame, put these characters into an interesting story right. and make them believable because even if the plot veers into like kind of wild territory that may not happen to your everyday woman if you believe the character if I've done my job and I've created a real believable woman then you will follow her anywhere and you will care about what happens to her and you it doesn't matter how far-fetched the plot you know see Jane Run is about a, a woman who wakes up well goes for a walk one day and discovers she can't remember who she is and and then she sees that her pockets are full of hundred dollar bills and the front of her dress is covered with blood. Well, I don't know how many women have ever experienced that. I'm guessing not many. Not too many. And yet I have had women all over the world come up to me and say, you wrote my life. Really? Yes. And it's... And yet you're running, you're writing these thrillers, these very kind of twisty, suspenseful books. Yeah, because again, you understand with, you, you get the women, you understand what they're going through. It's you know I'm I'm dealing in basic human emotions. So even if the the plot is relatively far fetched, uh, although I don't think they necessarily are, but even if it is, the women themselves, you know these women, so you identify with what they're going through. Right. We have all felt. Um, love. We've well, hopefully, we've all felt love. We've felt disappointment. We've felt loneliness. We've felt frustration. Sometimes you wake up in the morning and you don't know who you are. You know, it's like, is, you know, is this my life? How can this be my life? So that, those are the sorts of things uh, that I'm I'm writing about. What about your research then? Because like your books take place in all different places, all different backgrounds. Like, how much research do you do for each novel? How do you decide where something is going to take place? 
Um, usually I decide on the city according to what city, uh, what setting I think would best serve, serve the story. Oh, interesting. Okay. So uh, I like to move it around just so I don't get bored, the reader doesn't get bored. I mean, there are some writers who are, set every book in the same place. And, you know, it's like Ann Tyler, who I think is a good writer, but I think it's time to get out of Baltimore. You know, it's <laughs> like just, you know, broaden your horizons I was a thinking like bit. Louise Penny as well, right? Like <laughs> oh, she writes yeah, one Yeah, she writes in the very, in Quebec, you know, yeah. yeah. And so... I like to move it around. It's a little more interesting for me, and I, I hope the reader. Uh, but then I set the books, depending, again, what the store, what I feel are the demands of the story. Um, sometimes I've set the books in Canada, not too many, because I find the U.S. landscape kind of works better with my books. Uh, so do you city, go to you know, the city? Do you check yeah, it out? Sometimes. Sometimes I have been in the cities. Uh, sometimes I just work through guidebooks, or now the Internet has made research much easier because I'm not a big fan of research. I know there are, yeah, some writers love it. I, to me, it feels too much like homework. So I, I do as much research as I need to, to make the story believable, but I don't do a whole lot. I could rather make it up. So I like to make up. I'm like I'm like Trump. I like to make up my facts. So um, I, I find that I, you know, I, I'll, I'll set it wherever, you know, like Florida. I love setting books in Florida because Why? Florida works on such a, on so many levels. It works just plain, you know, just because there's Florida. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and the weather's always nice. I don't have to worry about snow and seasons stuff. But also it looks idyllic. You know, it looks it like paradise. It's beautiful. But then you look a little closer and there's the alligator and by the, the swamp. There's and the, the poisonous bugs snake. And the, yeah. There's the constant threat of hurricanes. So it's really like there's all this underlying horror just kind of waiting for you. <laughs> do you um, already have an idea of like what your next book is going to be? Like how far in advance do you have ideas percolating in your head? I get, I'm, when I was doing a book a year, and I'm, I think I'm probably going to take a little longer this time uh, I would sort of almost have one ready as I was finishing one I would wow. be already starting to think of the next one after I finished all the wrong places I just thought you know what I feel like a little break so I kind of took it easy and I'm just now starting to uh, I've put together a, a very short outline and uh, I'll is that Probably what you usually the do then? You work on, work from an outline? I like to get, I like to do it. Somebody, uh, an old agent actually once said to me, do an outline. And it was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got because it helps you organize your thoughts. You don't have to do, you know, they can be anywhere from like two pages to 12 pages, whatever. And it can be as, it's mostly plot. A little bit about who the characters are and then this is the basic story. But um, I don't, I don't do as much in the way of an outline as I used to. I, I just get the basic, like the beginning, the end, right. uh, maybe something something crucial that has to happen kind of midway, and then kind of a few interesting things that I know are going to happen. It. But part of the fun of writing is just not knowing what you're going to do from day to day, just sitting down and see, see what happens. How many hours a day do you write? Is there, do you just... Whatever works. Uh, I, when I'm working on a book, it's usually uh, a minimum of three to four hours a day. Uh, I find four hours is really optimum. After that, my brain kind of gets a little fuzzy. Yeah, I can see that. And uh, but if I have a whole day to work, then sometimes I'll I'll work for maybe like the whole day. I'll take little breaks, but 
um, I usually try and work in the morning and then save the afternoon for you know errands and all that regular everyday stuff. stuff. Yeah. The pe- the stuff that the people in your books don't do. <laughs> oh, no, they do it. They do it <laughs> while they're also going through all this yes, other stuff trauma. in there. Uh, Joy Fielding's latest book is called All the Wrong Places. It is available now. Check it out. I know what I'm going to be doing tonight. Joy, thank you so much for joining oh, us. My pleasure. Thank Always you. Always lovely to have you here. Well, I do love it when this list comes out every year. When you know dictionaries like Merriam-Webster or Oxford Dictionary people come out and say, "Hey, these are the new." words that we have come up with. Some of them I know, some of them I don't know. So of course, we brought our contributor Claire Allen in to tell me all that I don't know, which I'm sure is a lot this time around. Because I looked at some of these words and I was like, what? Okay. I'm glad you said it because I didn't want to say you didn't know what these words were. (laughs) So you just assumed that I wasn't going to know what these words are. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you did, that's fine. Um, So there were hundreds of words added to the dictionary. Hundreds of words. We don't have time to go through them all, but let's just go through. Did you pick all the ones that you know I'm not going to know? So Yeah, I thought I'd, you know, educate you. That's what the point of the show is, Simi, about learning. Anyway, so you know how, have you ever wondered how they do this, how they actually pick the words? No, I, how do they, you're right. That's a good question. How do they do that? Because it's an interesting job. So apparently Merriam-Webster has roughly two dozen lexographers, and they scan online versions of newspapers, magazines, academic journals, books, and even movie and television scripts until they detect what they call a critical mass usage that warrants inclusion in a dictionary. Wouldn't you love to have this job? No. I think it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> you could debate new words around the office. I guess, but like all that, like look searching for these words. That I, but really, are you going to find them in newspapers and magazines? Social media, don't they check social media? I would think it would media? be social media. So I was surprised that that wasn't mentioned because a lot of these words, which we'll get to in a second, are very commonly used on social media. So then the words are added to the online dictionary before they're added to the uh, collegiate dictionary, which according to uh, the company spokeswoman, Megan Lung, her this has sold the dictionary sold more than 50 million copies to me like physical copies yeah physical i believe copies. that it was like i believe that they well would... also we're talking about since 1898 oh okay yeah well, that's a lot <laughs> maybe they should be too proud with that at the beginning <laughs> yeah i know so let's get to some of these all right. words all, all right. right hit me let's go okay do you know what swole means swole could you spell that please s-w-o-l-e has something to do with like I don't know like muscles. Yes, you're right. So it means that oh, so you're I'm supposed not right. to. I'm just vague. Well, you're right. It, it means extremely muscular, having a physique enhanced by bodybuilding exercises. So essentially, you'll hear Can this. You use that in a sentence for me. Yeah. So it's usually <laughs> used <laughs> with to get swole. Like, oh, I've got to go get swole at the gym. I hate the word so much. I hear it often with like some guys in my life that really want to like beef up. Like, oh, I've got to get swole for the picture. And you're just like, oh, please. Oh, I do love that you put Stop. the voice on too. That's well, usually great. in companies, that voice. <laughs> um, so, and then the next word is snowflake, okay, which I'm sure you know. know. Yeah. So, now used to mean both someone regarded or treated as unique or special and someone who is overly sensitive. I'm telling you, I'm guilty of using this. I am guilty of using this one. Yeah. I mean, we've heard that a lot, uh, especially when they refer to um, university kids. They say, yes, don't be such a snowflake. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know that one. one. Yeah. All right. What about peak? Like, like P E A K. Like the peak of something? Like, like the peak of what? A mountain? Yeah. Wrong. (laughs) No. So, um, I think you mean in addition to. um, It means uh, the height of popularity, peak television. Or peak, uh, peak nerd. <laughs> Thanks for that. She's looking right at me when she so, said that. Like 
Yeah. So it just so like if you say, oh, like television, it's so popular right now. You'd be like, oh, it's peak television yeah, right now. Yeah, it's being at the height of popularity, use or attention. Okay, mm-hmm. I could see that. Okay, so then they added the word page view, which you know means uh, an instance of user viewing an individual page on a website. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, what about on brand? Yeah, I get that. Okay, yeah. So typical of identity, a particular like brand just, or public yeah. image or identity. Yeah. yeah. What about the word stan? Not the name, but the word. Like, like it's a verb. I don't understand. I know. It's like Kazakhstan. One. No, not like that to me. <laughs> I don't understand. So stan the new what the verb stan means to exhibit fandom to an extreme or excessive degree to be an extremely devoted and enthusiastic fan of someone or something. So like I've never heard this. There's like before. fans, like normal yeah, fans. Course. Like you might be a fan of uh, I don't, don't know. Don't do it. Okay. You're gonna make fun of me for something. <laughs> I don't know. The Avengers, Marvel comics. But yeah. maybe if you took it to a level where you were going to that 48 hour movie marathon that we were talking about yesterday, you would be a stan because oh. you'd be in my books nuts. <laughs> so a stan is somebody who's like way way Just deep into something. Some would make the argument that maybe they're a little overly obsessed with something. Oh. And so you might see that actually now if you are on Instagram and you check out maybe young artists like Justin Bieber's fans, their stands because they create fan accounts, they go wild, they they believe in all these fan conspiracies, all this the tons I of commenting. I go home and use all of these words today. Uh, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> what else? Um, okay, garbage time. That's a new word. That's not about the garbage? No, it's not like trash collection time. Oh, what it's is not it? when you take your trash out to the alley. Okay, so apparently means the final moments or minutes of a game in which one side has an insurmountable lead. Really? Yeah. So garbage time. Uh, okay. Like, I guess, like, there's no point. There's no hope. Whatever. There's just garbage time. I can change. I can change get up the and channel. Throw things in the garbage. Like, what? no, you could just change the channel because it doesn't matter. It's just garbage time. I doesn't don't know. Even... Okay. Sports has always told us it's very rare, right? Well, like, you just never remember know what happens. What happened at the Super Bowl when Tom Brady, the Patriots, yeah. came back? People might have thought that was garbage time. I was one of those That's people that thought it was garbage time. Went away, and lo and behold, missed like the best comeback of Super Bowl oh, history. Exactly. Anyway, okay. so here's another one. Go cup. Okay, I heard this one. So this has to do with like a drink to go, but is this word really necessary? Well, you know what? In today's use, uh, recycling uh, culture, I think this is a horrible word. So, okay. And also like again, it's a plastic, plastic cup. We're right. very against plastics nowadays. So go cup is a plastic or paper cup used especially for taking a beverage off the premises of bar or restaurant, etc. It's just like a drink to go. It's like one of those Do we solo need a special cups. word for this? I know. It's like a to go drink. Yeah. Yeah. I know, silly. I'd like to take that drink out, please. Like, do you need, I, I need a go cup? Like, that's, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. That. Yeah. Okay, so then screen time, which yeah, we all yeah. sort of know. Okay. So, yeah, it used to refer to the amount of time someone was in front of a camera, but now it's referring to time spent oh, in front of a screen. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Gig economy, um, yeah. which was coined in 2009, so I'm actually kind of... Ten years. Yeah, very interesting that it kind of only made it into the dictionary now. So, you know, a gig economy is an economic activity that involves the use of temporary or freelance workers to perform jobs typically in the service sector right so like if you want to work for a ride hailing yeah, or whatever definitely or like okay. task rabbit which is like big in the states Taskrabbit, that's huge in the states I know. I know i would love to have that here what pay somebody to stand in line for you do anything <laughs> i put in a deck the other week and i'd love to have paid someone to do <laughs> that um okay buzzy I get that. Something that's like generating a lot of buzz. Can't we just say it's generating a lot of buzz? Like Apparently we really people need, to- need to, people need Alexa to turn off a light for them, Claire. <sighs> Apparently they need to shorten everything. Right. So buzzy means um, it's causing or characterized by a lot of speculative or excited talk or attention. Okay. That is generating buzz. Sure. Okay. Here's an interesting one. Bottle episode. What is that? 
I know. I had to look this up. Thank God we had the dictionary. Finally, it's in there now. Finally, um, one that she didn't inexpensively know. produced episode of television uh, that is typically confined to one setting. So here is an example because I was thinking, I was racking my own brain thinking about have I seen something like this before? And here's one that you will know because you're such a big fan. Seinfeld's Chinese restaurant episode is considered oh, a bottle episode because it was all in one place. Exactly, oh, and God, apparently Larry David hated fi- filming that that he almost quit the show because he just I guess he didn't think it was creative enough. It was like in the fourth episode of the first season. Yeah, he really hated the fact that they were confined to one location. Another famous bottle episode uh, is Friends, the one where no one is ready. Oh, yeah. All in the apartment, remember? Yes. And so after Friends actually created, they did that uh, episode, they decided they would create a bottle episode for every season. I love that. And the last one, Simi, you know. Egot. Egot. Yeah. That's the person who wins like an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Finally. One of them I actually knew. Congratulations. Thank you, Claire. (laughs) You know, we see it every day and it feels like we're talking about it all the time these days. And that is misinformation. And a lot of it spread on social media begins with a tweet and that gets shared and then it gets reshared. And then you see misinformation spreading everywhere. And that's why this week it was really interesting to see that the Sri Lankan government took the unique step to shut down social media networks in the aftermath of the Easter Sunday bombings. And they say it was to stop the spread of false news reports. This is a problem that had happened, uh, you know, with the last few terrorist attacks that we've seen, misinformation has always been a huge issue right after the fact. So it's not clear, though, when the shutdown is actually going to end. And one of the side effects of that is that people have been kind of struggling to communicate with one another. And you could argue that this is a time when they need that communication the most just to check in and see if, you know, a loved one is safe or in that area. So when we talk about a ban on social media in cases like this, is it protection against misinformation or is it interference in free speech? It's an interesting topic. We're going to tackle it with the help of our guest, Clint Watts, who's a former FBI agent who studies misinformation for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Clint is also the author of Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Clint, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What did you think about what the Sri Lankan government did this week? I think it's a first case study, really, where we've had a a sharp, uh, acute instance of violence. And they've seen social media as a way to essentially decelerate that, meaning that if you turn social media off, maybe you can slow the pace of reprisals or misinformation that might lead to what I call kind of spiraling, you know, contagion of violence off of it. So uh, what, what we've seen in the third world, when I was writing my book, it was fascinating that I've been focusing a lot on terrorist and uh, Russian disinformation in the U.S. election, but in the third world, um, social media had taken on a much more devastating effect, particularly in places like India and WhatsApp. Yeah. And Sri Lanka uh, is another example. And so I think uh, governments are finally trying to deal with this, that how do they try and control and contain that violence right after an incident? And Sri Lanka has really taken a unique step that people have talked about but never really executed. Right. But there is that downside as well, isn't there, Clint? That idea that, well, that's how we check in with people. That's how we also learn more about these stories. Yeah, there's two parts to it. One, it's the awareness piece. This is the way we all stay in touch with each other nowadays through social media. This is how a lot of people follow the news. This is how I would know about what was going on in Sri Lanka. And then the second part really is if governments are controlling the tap, I mean, essentially turning on and off social media or controlling it, 
can they use it for their own purposes or mislead people in terms of the information space, which can also have a devastating effect. We've seen a lot of countries, uh, Myanmar, Cambodia, Philippines, where the government has gone in and really used it to sort of uh, oppress dissidents or anyone that challenges them. And so you, this is another tool you could use, use an emergency like this, shut off social media so that you can control, you can essentially control the population, which could also be devastating. And really, I think for researchers, this is a first big case study of what's the impact in terms of awareness, in terms of quelling violence, in terms of quelling misinformation, and, and what really comes out is it, is it better or worse for society as a whole. Right, because we've talked, to, obviously, we read a lot about North America, what's happening with Facebook, but you mentioned WhatsApp, and in Asia, it seems like WhatsApp has been the much bigger concern. It has been. It, we have we are uh, a very Western-focused, and so we expect to have social media uh, we think it's going to be Twitter, Facebook, these sorts of things that we're used to. But what we've seen is the peer-to-peer sharing conspiracies in the less developed parts of the world have led to all sorts of violence based on either misinformation, just false information that people fall for, or disinformation put out by a, a political agenda or by a state. And this has led to people being killed. Uh, in India, they've had uh, spates of rumors uh, fueling alleged kidnappings, which has resulted in just random travelers being murdered by mobs. And in this sort of violent dynamic has really taken hold. So I think in the West, we sort of see it as well. People aren't aware, but maybe we're not aware for, as Westerners what, what the impact really is of these conspiracies on, uh, on what's happened, how it spreads like a contagion. Right, because, I mean, here we are talking about it, but it, it's been happening in real world, real time in other countries. Do you think this will actually help, though, in Sri Lanka? I don't know. I, I really think it's a test case. I, I'm interested to hear what the social media companies think. I mean, from their perspective, you know, their businesses, they've been doing business in these countries. How has it turned down uh, their business? You know, how, how are they keeping their business running in these countries? Yeah. Um, and are they maybe relieved? To an extent, they've taken a lot of heat. If you remember after the New Zealand attack, they were working very aggressively to take down that content uh, and did fairly well, but they still took an enormous amount of heat from regulators and legislators. And so maybe they're even willing to a certain degree to try and control that information flow when they know it could lead to mass misinformation and then resulting violence. It's a a test case. I, I don't think we've seen it before. And I'm interested in see kind of the, the dueling right. debate about awareness uh, and security uh, that comes from this. I was thinking as well while you were talking there, Clint, about the case of Facebook in uh, Myanmar, right, in, in Burma. Right. They, they faced a lot of criticism for allowing misinformation to spread that resulted in, uh, you know, crimes committed against the Rohingya minority there. Um, and why haven't the companies then spoken up about this? Is it because they know they have been negligent in some of these areas? I think oftentimes they uh, find out about it when we find out about it. The problem that the social media companies have is they've created platforms that have spread around the world faster than they can be policed. And so if you look at Facebook, it appears in you know dozens and dozens of languages, hundreds of countries now. But the whole platform was designed for near instantaneous uploads. It was designed so that anyone could get on and put up content. And by doing that and growing... They never put in the, the controls, really, the people to go through and sift through that information. So in a lot of these countries, Myanmar is a great example. Cambodia and Philippines are two other good ones. 
where they've seen these tools used to suppress minorities or to push out dissidents, they haven't really had people staffed there or even enough people uh, competent in the language to police that content. Now, Facebook in particular has grown that capability pretty aggressively over the last two years, but they have enormous amounts of ground to catch up with. And just the spread of these social media platforms in so many different countries, they, they really don't have the staff uh, to do it, and they don't have maybe the language capabilities to even, even police all that information. Right. So then, I mean, you study misinformation then, Clint. So what makes something spread? Is there any rhyme or reason to it? A big part of it is that social media is designed uh, to give you information based on two criteria. One, information that you like. That's the like symbol. And when you, when you like information, that plays to your confirmation bias or what you already tend to believe. You then seek out and reamplify and spread information that confirms what you want to believe. The second part uh, that I talk about in my book is uh, implicit bias, which is people like to hear information from people that are in their in-group that look like them and talk like them. If you've uh, read any about the Russian interference in the U.S. election or French election, Germany and Brexit, they created accounts that look like and talk like the audience. And so people tend to believe it then, even if it may turn out to be not true later on. And those two components make it very difficult with social media to unwind things that are emotionally charged, that play on political, social, religious issues that people want to consume and come from their in-group. If this works then for Sri Lanka, do you see other countries perhaps thinking that they need to take a more aggressive tone against these social media companies as well? I think you've already seen it. Uh, Russia actually was, has been working to try and pass a law that allows them to essentially turn off the Internet and have basically a Russian internal Internet, which would police the outside. Uh, China's already uh, taken some rather aggressive steps in terms of controlling the interview, uh, internet and social media and even implementing and integrating it into a social scoring system. And I've even seen it with extremist groups where they take over portions of a the country. They've turned off cell towers or turned off the social media feeds into the areas they control. So I think it's already been happening. This is just the first time I can remember where there was a specific incident that, that created a policy change that turned off information sources. So I imagine if it's successful at quelling violence, a lot of states would try and use that maybe even for their own advantage and for their own reasons, um, whether they be uh, in the best interest of the public or not. Boy, how things have changed, haven't they? Because, you know, you think back to 2011 and you had all these movements happening in countries around the world and people thought that social media was going to help bring democracy everywhere. That's right. The tool that once was for liberation was for rallying people in hopes of democracy, civil liberties and freedom is now the really the tool of authoritarians that want to suppress challengers uh, internal to their country and to influence audiences outside their country. And it's become something that can be harnessed by those that have the right sort of resources, the right initiative, and really unfiltered or unregulated access to these social media companies. And it's a deep challenge for us as a society because we want free speech, we want open yeah. dialogue. But at the same point, if we can't figure out who people are, who's really authentic, uh, then if they're just anonymous, it, it really yeah. creates a glaring opening for anybody to mess with any audience. I feel like that's the social media companies that kind of missed the boat on that, because if they're allowing people to, you know, have these accounts where there's no picture, there's, like there's no real name attached to them, then you're allowing that misinformation to spread. So has the boat sailed? Like even if they tried to crack down now, would anybody believe them? 
some of their business models are intuitively just challenged by by trying to do that verification. So Twitter, for example, the company is based in part on the number of accounts it has on its platform. So every move they make to verify people slows down account generation or removes a lot of accounts, which would devalue the platform as a whole. Uh, same with Facebook or uh, LinkedIn, um, any of these other platforms, when you look at them, um, they want to create as few barriers as possible to account creation. But by doing that, they're making it more and more vulnerable as a platform for accounts that are going to spread misinformation. So unless they come up with some control, some way to verify authenticity, they're going to struggle with this in terms of creating growth, essentially, on their platforms. So what are you looking for, Clint? Like, I know the Sri Lankan case, it's a test case here. We're waiting to see what happens. But what are you going to be looking for in the next few days here? I'm looking to see when they turn it back on and when people have open access and then what the reaction is, both in terms of the public and, and some key researchers. Uh, I think there's a lot of researchers that have been looking at the best way to do this. This has been one of the things that's been tossed around, you know, in academic discussions. Well, maybe we turn it off in heightened emotional times, you know, post-violence. And then do we see any sort of uh, after effects? Do people come back to the platforms? Do they move to other information sources? I imagine they'll come back to those social media applications. Um, but then again, does it, does it create a more uh, calm and civil environment, the public square that everyone's always trying to find on social media, or does it just ramp up either sectarian or partisan divides again? Interesting. All right, we'll all be watching. Clint, thank you so much for, to talk, for talking to us about this. Thanks for having me. That is Clint Watts, who is a former FBI agent. He studies misinformation for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also written a book about this. The book is called Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. That sounds like a book for our times. What are some of the biggest business blunders of all time that you can think of? I saw this anniversary today and thought, oh yeah, this is a good one for us to talk about. Think back to 1985. Well, let's see. I think I was in finishing grade eight, going into grade nine. And the biggest thing around was Pepsi, right? Because Pepsi had spent a lot of money and they had like Michael Jackson doing their commercials. Michael J. Fox was doing their commercials. They were like the hip beverage. That was the big time of the Cola Wars. Uh, This was a very big deal back then. So Pepsi was really gaining on Coca-Cola and taking over that soft drink market. So Coke was in trouble back then. And they decided to do something crazy and wild, and they thought it was brave and innovative. Not so much. So on this day, 34 years ago, the Coca-Cola company launched New Coke, their new recipe for Coke. They weren't going to sell that old stuff anymore. No, no. They had come up with a better recipe after 100 years, and they were going to sell it as New Coke. And it became one of the most infamous tales of business gone wrong of all time. Sales just continued to slide in Pepsi's direction. So Coke came out with this ad. Recently, an independent research firm ran a taste test between Coke and Pepsi. And the taste more people chose was the taste of Coca-Cola. Yes, more people all across the country, when comparing Coke to Pepsi, chose the taste of Coke as the better taste. Let's look at it this way. We gave America a choice, and more people said, Coke is in. It's a hit. It's a Coke. Coke is in. No, it was not. Coke was not it. New Coke was not it 
at all. Like, why would you mess with the recipe of something? You were the number one beverage at that time. Why would you mess with the recipe and make it better and then think that was going to help you? It did not. Pepsi was very quick to capitalize on Coke's misfortune back then. They came out with this TV ad, which depicted people who drank Coke for decades being fed up with the new recipe and making that switch to Pepsi. What's the matter, Wilbur? They changed my Coke. Something wrong with it? I know, but they sure changed it. Coulda asked. But coulda. I stuck with them through three wars and a couple of dust storms, but this is too much. Guess something big made them change. Right, big. Right, big. Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. Still coulda asked. Is that not hilarious? Like these commercials just absolutely kill me. So they did a poll at the time that showed only ni- only 13% of soda drinkers said that they actually liked the new Coke. So it was like an epic bust. People like they had petitions, they had protests. I guess there was nothing else for us to be upset about in 1985 because this was a very big deal. And eventually Coke had to back down and bring back old Coke or Coca-Cola classic. They tried to sell both of them for a while there. Then they just gave up on the whole new Coke thing altogether. But that remains, they teach this at business school, the biggest kind of business blunder of all time. But then we thought about, well, what are some other ones? What are some other big, huge, splashy business things that went horribly wrong? Well, how about the DeLorean? In 1975, John DeLorean launched his vision for a new type of car, you know, the kind that had the gullwing doors. He said it was going to revolutionize the world of automobile engineering. And this is a car that is infamous, of course, for a different reason. It's because it was the the car in the Back to the Future <laughs> series of movies, right? But that was that came later. That was 1985. In 1982, there were only 8,500 cars that had even been manufactured, and the DeLorean car company collapsed. And then John DeLorean was tried for drug charges. That ended very poorly. But have a listen to how the DeLorean was advertised on TV back in 1981. The DeLorean. Gullwing doors rise effortlessly, beckoning you inside. The sleek, stainless steel DeLorean. Beautifully crafted for long life. The DeLorean is one of the most awaited automobiles in automotive history. Drive the DeLorean. Live the dream today. Ooh, live the dream. If you didn't know these commercials are real, you'd be sure that they were we were spoofing them, right? But no, these are actual commercials from the early 1980s. The DeLorean now, if somebody sees it, the only thing they think of is Back to the Future and the flux capacitor. They don't think of the actual DeLorean vehicles. But there is one actually around here. I've seen one. There's somebody in the city who in the vicinity of like Canby and Broadway, there's somebody who lives around there in that neighborhood who has one because I have seen it parked on a street there. And of course, every time I see it, I do a double take there. Some other big blunders. Well, how about the United States Football League? This was the USFL. It was supposed to compete against the NFL. It ran for just three seasons from 1983 to 1985. And in the final season, They moved it to the fall in order to get a head start on the NFL. And that was all because of the determination of one man. And yes, everything old is new again. The owner of the New Jersey Generals, that would be Donald Trump. 
Well, we had a good league, but I always said spring football will never work. It'll never be first class. And if you look at a building like this, it's 57th and 5th. It's the best location right next to Tiffany. And that's what I've been all about, doing the best. And spring football was not that. And I thought if we moved to the fall, we'd create tremendous problems for the NFL and something would happen. Yeah, something happened. The league folded. And that was the end of the USFL. I think that was the last time probably the league was even seriously challenged. Like, now we have the XFL and other things since then, but nothing really like that. But still, huge. A lot of people spent a lot of money on that. And then there's one of my personal favorites as well. Now, when you were a kid and you had, you know, recorded things on video cassette, was that a VHS video cassette or was that a Betamax video cassette? Because Betamax was developed by Sony and was released in May of 1975. That was a full year ahead of the rival format VHS, came out a year later. So Betamax was regarded as being technologically superior, but... By 1988, Sony had admitted defeat and the final Betamax cassettes were, that's it, phased out. In fact, I think they just finished producing them in 2015. But here was the pitch that consumers heard for the Betamax back in the mid-80s. If you're looking at video cassette recorders and you're confused by all your choices, just look at the most important feature of all, the picture. And Sony Betamax records a sharper picture than VHS. That's not just our opinion. In tests throughout the country, more people said the picture was sharper with Sony Betamax than VHS. So how many choices do you really have? Only one. Sony Betamax, a sharper picture. Is it like the same guy doing all of these commercials from the 80s? And does it seem to you like all of the marketing and their persuasion was all about tests that they did around the country and what surveys said that you should be watching and drinking? Sure seems that way, although I don't remember that. Here's the funny thing about the Betamax story is that in our family, like, you know, I come from a very large family. So we decided back in the early 80s that when when they were going to get a video cassette recorder that everybody should get the same format because obviously we were going to record things and we were going to swap tapes and all that kind of stuff. So collectively, as a huge family, we all bought, wait for it, Betamax. (laughs) All of us. And as the years went on and it became harder and harder to rent, it became this like, well, which family is going to crack first and, and buy the VHS because nobody wanted to because we all had the exact same uh, video cassette recorder. It took years. I think I don't think it was until like 1990 that one of us finally cracked and bought a, a VHS. I think it was actually my house actually that we actually did that. But yeah, that was a tough one. Those are just some of the biggest business blunders of all time. Maybe you remember some as well. If you've got one, share it with me. Simi at cknw.com. Some important news you've been hearing about today in our newscast, and that has to do with money that is being committed to help combat gang crime in this province, which, as we know, is a big problem. Well, the federal government has committed $30 million over the next five years, and some of that money will go towards you know gang prevention programs in places like Abbotsford, the Caribou-Chilcotin, and the Greater Victoria region. So, We wanted to know what this means. What is this going to uh, accomplish? Where's that money going to go? To talk more about that, we're joined now by Mike Farnworth, the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Okay, so where is this going to go? How do you decide who gets the money? Okay, well, first off, there are existing uh, streams of funding that we have here in in British Columbia, which is application-based. That comes from civil forfeiture grants. And 
And one of the things we've noticed for a long time now is there's always more demand than there is funding. And this is one of the issues that uh, the province has raised with the federal government, and that's how this, this additional funding has now uh, come on stream. It was the, they actually announced $327 million and 214 is available for the provinces. In British Columbia, you should probably get about $30 million. And we received the first tranche of $5.3 million. So those applications that have come in through the regular process here in BC are evaluated, and then decisions are made that okay, yeah, these are these are good uh, good programs in priority areas, and that's how the uh, the funding decisions are made. Yeah. Okay. So, what are the priority areas? Well, um, prevention um, is is a, is a key initiative, uh, and that's so we're looking at Abbotsford and and Caribou uh, as two areas. Surrey's already had uh, funding, uh, initial funding, uh, and other communities uh, in, in in around the province, including uh, the superintendent, the BC School Superintendents Program. So, within the education system, uh, there's a, a programs being funded as well. So, we know about what's been happening in Abbotsford. We hear about that. We hear about Surrey, but what's been happening in the Caribou? Well, they have uh, similar pressures. I mean, a lot of people, you know, think that the gang issue is is really has been a, a Surrey issue, and the fact is, it's not. It's a regional and it's a province-wide, and in fact, it's a national problem. Uh, it varies from community to community, and that's one of the the things that we're particularly pleased about with this funding is it's allowing us to design and to to, to fund programs that are unique to the community they're intended to serve. Uh, because every you know communities have different demographic makeups, different uh, uh, crime and, and, and gang problem issues, and so that's what these these programs are intended to to uh, to, to do, which is to in many cases, which is to fund on the prevention side and the the awareness side, uh, and to uh, facilitate crime reduction. So a lot of these programs you said still exist, like these ones are currently exist, like the ones in Abbotsford. These are the ones that are intended to kind of keep kids occupied or if somebody wants to get out of the gangs, give them somebody to talk to? Absolutely. So there's a, there's a range of different uh, ways in which they're, they're approached. Sometimes, uh, you know, kids are referred to the program uh, by parents or, or by teachers. Uh, parents come in and, then, and they're, you know, they don't know what to do so they can get information. Uh, there's also opportunities in terms of programs that are designed to exit, uh, you know, the gang lifestyle and to get out of gangs. Uh, so, again, those are also the kinds of things that, that, are, that this funding will go towards. Um, it also goes to strengthening families and give families uh, uh, more tools and, and, and information on how to recognize, um, you know, if, if, uh, if they think their child is, is falling into the gang lifestyle, for example. Are we getting better at this? I think we are getting better at this. Um, many of these programs are, as I said you know, a moment ago, are community-driven and they're designed to to meet the needs of, of a particular community. As what's required is really is a multi-pronged approach. It's not all about enforcement, and the police will be the first to tell you that, that there needs to be programs that support families, uh, that support young people, give them options, give them a pathway uh, out of, uh, you know, the, the gang lifestyle, if that's, what they're, if that's what they're involved in, an exit strategy, um, along with... Uh, programs designed to, to get people to make to get them before right. they fall into that trap. Do you think families are becoming more vocal? Because this is something that, you know, we always talk about is that how can the parents not know what's going on? Are they becoming better at recognizing the signs? I think parents 
are becoming more vocal. Uh, certainly, um, you know, the, the program support, like the one in Abbotsford, has very much got a lot of uh, community support behind it. Uh, there were some issues of funding later in the fall, or sorry, earlier uh, in the fall uh, of last year, and it was parents that, that, that came and really pushed for the continuation of the program, along with community organizations that, uh, such as United Way that stepped up until this new federal funding and that, the, uh, that we, we were able to, uh, to allocate to it. Right. Okay. So then this money will go to a lot of these programs. How many years of funding can these programs expect to get stability for? Well, this, this, this first tranche, so for the program in Abbotsford, it sure ensures that they've got funding for at least the next two years. And our expectation is, is that, uh, is that um, uh, well, the agreement with the federal government is, is that the, this, this new money that, we're, that we will be getting as a province is guaranteed over the next five years. Uh, and so as, as, the funding comes available, then it will flow to uh, to these programs. All right. Well, Minister Farnworth, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate that. That is Mike Farnworth, Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General.